Andrei Alexis is the author of two novels, Childhood and Asylum, two books of short stories, Despair, and other stories of Ottawa and Beauty and Sadness, a children's book, Ingrid and the Wolf, and a number of plays. He was a contributing book reviewer for the Globe and Mail and has worked extensively in radio, having been the host writer of CBC Radio 1's Radio Nomad and CBC Radio 2's Skylarking. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Just finished reading A, mm-hmm. your most recent novella, the lead character. He's a mediocre book reviewer. Perhaps you could trace the story briefly for us. To me, he goes from being a book reviewer who finally meets one of his idols who tells him where his inspiration comes from and leaves him with the possibility of being a writer himself. He is exposed to that inspiration source, which happens to be God, or God in quotation marks, and finds it absolutely debilitating to be in the presence of a God figure, which is, who is, demonstrably, partially insane, I suppose, in his own version of things, and uh, can finds that he can't deal with the quote-unquote God of inspiration for as long as his idol could. He can only deal with it for the space of the writing of a novel and a half or a novel and three quarters, at which point he has made some profit and he returns to his life probably as a reviewer and lives it out without this inspiration. But at the end, he sort of misses it and goes back looking for it and finds that he can't find it anymore. So there has to be a reconciliation with that, with just, okay, I'm I'm either the kind of person that can do this, I might not, lives his life out. At least feeling that he had been close to something um, truthful. Truthful and as lucid as a human can be. Yeah. You start the book off with a quote from Margaret Lawrence, yeah, who basically thought that chasing the, the muse was a bit like being a diviner. Mm-hmm. Then things become all at once strange. A quote that was found for me by Rue Borson, and I'll tell you how. Rue's one of my best friends. No, she's probably my best friend at this point. A was in some ways written for her, so I wanted to write a story and allow her in on my creative process. So in a way, because of the process and what the story was, it became about writing, because I was constantly showing it to Rue. That's kind of where Alexander Badley comes from. Badley being a beautiful name for a critic. Yes, yes. As opposed to good, for example. Yeah, as opposed to good. No, I didn't think I had. I didn't have Alexander Good in mind because I have no idea who Alexander Good is. So you're looking for you're you're looking for direct connections to all the characters. No, 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 I'm not. Okay. No, no. But I am. I am going to step into the first character. Mm-hmm. Badly, the critic is obsessed with Avery Andrews, mm-hmm. and he consults his friend early on, Gil Davidov, Mm -hmm. about what he should do. Now, Davidov is the name of a penguin executive who wrote a novel, who was involved in... David Dar was his name. Okay, yes. Okay, so, but that... That's what jumped to mind. David was not in my mind at all. Well, the thing is, he took a fall because of one of his colleagues accusing him of sexual harassment. Yes, that's true. It wasn't in my mind at all. I uh, had only, and this was one of the lovely moments, is reading Mark Medley's interview with David Gilmore, in which David Gilmore says a character in his novel is Andre Alexis. My first thing is like, well, geez, I guess that means I can use David Gilmore in one of mine. So I did, and he was very useful. 
So it was actually in after reading that uh, interview and uh, Gil Davidor, Gil Davidar, Gil Davidoff jumping into my consciousness was perfect. But it's yeah. not really David Gilmour. It's actually one of his protagonists writ large. So I get to use one of his versions of himself. An yeah. avatar. An avatar of himself. You know? An avatar of himself. <laughs> <laughs> but I like Gil Davidoff more than I would like David Gilmour, who I think is petty, mean-spirited, and not particularly good as a writer. Right. And I'm happy to say that. I guess the reason that you feel that way is that originally you'd written... A review of a book called The Perfect Night to Go to China. And yeah. my criticism of that book is a criticism that I would still stand by. First of all, it's a cheap remake of A Child in Time by Ian McEwan, which is the infinitely better novel. And second of all, it's a book in which a child is abducted, in which the mother of the child figures, but only as an adjunct to the emotions of the father. It's all about the protagonist, it's all about the male, which is all that David Gilmour really cares about. His ability to go beyond that into the other characters is virtually non-existent in that book. So well, his, his you're ability or his, or his wish? I think it's ability, because you would have to point to a point in some other novel in which uh, a character, aside from the protagonist, was given time on the stage to be three-dimensional. Maybe you can think of one. I can't. My take on that as a reader is I don't give a shit about how multi-dimensional various characters are. I care about the, story? the enjoyment of the reading. Okay. So you're being asked in that story to consider the kind of pain that a human being goes through. But if you're being asked to consider the kind of pain that a human being goes through while the pain of others within that novel is being ignored, you're being presented with a real uh, paradox, right? Because this is about the protagonist's pain. This is not about anybody else's. At some point, he acknowledges that within the book. A character says to the main uh, protagonist, your grief used to be something you know, real, but now it's become bullshit, mm. which is true. But why has it become bullshit? It's become bullshit because it's all about him. Mm. Okay, so he acknowledges that within the fiber of the book, but he still doesn't deal with anybody else's feelings within it. But, but who cares? I do. I why? Do I do because I, I, of two reasons. One, because I'm being asked to care about somebody, and therefore I need to figure out, well, what am I caring about? And I'm caring about someone who's all about themselves. Two, because it's actually a situation that is an easy emotional one. If you take away a child from the parent, almost any reader is going to have a deep emotional response, right? The yeah. deep emotional response to that situation isn't because of his writing. It's because of the situation. Well, he's chosen that situation. So did, he, so did Ian McEwen before him. Has he done mm. a better job than Ian McEwen? He won the Governor General's Award. That's not the same. That's not an answer to the question. I can't say because I haven't read the you other book. Read, okay. Again, my button is being pushed in a situation that is very vivid. Mm. A child has been taken away from a parent. What's being done with it? Mm. Well, actually... The only thing that's being done to it is the exposure of the emotion and distress of one character. Ad infinitum through that novel. There's not really any relief from it. That's the strength of it, if, yeah, you, if you connect to it. The thing is, though, are you not conflating the character with the author? 
that's a thing that he does. It's not a thing that I would have done. I, I said that the author's choices, thinking that there is a distinction between mm. narrator yeah, and Roman. You're, you're, hang on, hang on. Hang on. I, I wanted to make it clear that I thought the author's choices were problematic in my enjoyment of the book, because they had excluded what I thought was really important yeah. if you're going to deal with this subject. He then himself mentions that his books are not very different from reality. His protagonists are versions of him. They are his avatars. Am I conflating the protagonist and the writer? I'm being invited to by David Gilmore. Now, if you take that situation and you push it and say, Roman is David Gilmore, which he insists is the case since there's a quote-unquote diminishing island of, of, of difference between himself and reality, mm. so I'm being asked to what? Consider what David Gilmore would go through if his child was kidnapped? Is that, is that, is that what I'm being asked to do? Mm. So therefore I'm actually being asked to what? Judge somebody's suffering? So he's suffering for me? It becomes incredibly strange when you start to think that this is him looking at himself going through his child's abduction. Yes, but if you don't have any kind of emotional response to the author to start with, oh, it's a powerful... It's I didn't a, not. I didn't not. I didn't know him. That was the okay. first book of his that I'd read. No, again, legitimate that you would have your subjective response, and his response was... Fuck you. In fiction. Yeah, in fiction, but also actually not in fiction. Because in fiction, he wrote something called Rene Gaub. Yeah. In real life, he said, no, this is Andre Alexis. Yeah. And he went out to look for Andre Alexis. So there's a conflation of reality and non-reality yeah. in him anyway. He, in fact, insists that it's Andre Alexis. Now, if you say, well, hold up the portrait of a goblin. Hey, it's just Rene Goblin. Spook. Really get it? Yeah. You know, and then you hold up a portrait of Andre Alexis. Obviously, you're not going to see the same things. I don't hang around in the same way. I don't know. It's not my life. I didn't recognize myself. If he hadn't said Andre Alexis, I wouldn't think about Andre Alexis. But I would have thought as a, of a black person thinking, what? <laughs> what? Yeah. Again, there aren't a lot of black critics right. in Canada right. who would have read it to re respond to it, or even... That's the thing that I find interesting. No, there weren't any. And looking over all the people who had reviewed it, mm -hmm. Candace Fertil reviewed it, Aretha Van Herp reviewed it, yeah. there were certainly those who had um, acute lesbian sensibilities yeah. or feminist yeah. sensibilities yeah. that read yeah. it, didn't comment on it. No, no, and she, it, was a, it was quite a glowing review. Aretha's was. Yeah. yeah Aretha's was. Um, I can't remember whether she mentioned it or not, but it was just a question. Yeah. Like, is this a blindness, or is it, in fact... Because what happens when people don't mention it is that you may think, well, okay, <clears throat> you've got the codes wrong. Yeah. You're, you're, you're looking at it from Andre Alexis. That's right. That's and right. And therefore, you're taking it in a certain way. I, mean, I think I'm able to subtract myself from it and go, well, okay. Yeah. Look at what's going on. Yeah. Does that add up to uh, racism? For me, it adds up to blatant racism. But... It can be justified if you want to by saying that it's Andre Alexis and Martin Levin, yeah. and therefore not generalizable to black people in general. Yeah. Okay, can you have to answer my question? If it was a woman that was degraded, and it happened to be because David Gilmore, or whoever it was who was writing the book, had a legitimate gripe against a woman yeah. who had fleeced him of thousands of dollars or whatever it was, would you have ignored the degradation of that woman, understanding that it was dealing with? Uh, a personal case. Yeah, that's that's for me the the, the kind yeah. of sixty-four thousand yeah. dollar question. Well, for for me though, is it if 
I guess if uh, you know, it's one of these conjecture kind of things. If if I was black, mm -hmm. would I have noticed it? Yeah, and I, I again, think so. It's hard to say. I, I think, mean, I, I think so. But then I have to conjecture too because I'm only a black person. Yeah, and on some level, I'm not the proper black person to be talking about this because I'm also. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. Implicated. In yeah. Some yes. So yes. it's one of those situations where you can and can't talk, which yeah. is also kind of interesting to me. It's like, well, well you know, am I allowed to talk about this? Yeah, thing? because because you run the risk of of making it into a personal sort of literary feud thing. Well, but which but that but, yeah, but that but also using calling racism where there may not have been racism. So okay. That's, so what that's I would it. love to, which I think is really true, mm. and what I would love to have is somebody defending it on the grounds that it's not. Yeah, yeah. And seeing how that defense works. Yeah, um, yeah. Because that really, because I've, in the essay, I've actually set out what happens, Yeah. what the language is, what, you know, calling the guy a child molester and yeah. assaulting him for looking at you. Yeah, yeah he says it's like somebody who's uh, molested my child. Oh, well, his child, of course, is his, his book, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, though, isn't it? Yeah, no, no. A bad I mean, review, and is it like it's a molestation? It's well, like, no, I, it's I, I, so overwrought and overwritten well, he's, at he's, some he's, point you're thinking, like, you know. So, rewind a bit yep. and get to the fact that you have sort of publicly suggested that negative reviewing is something that shouldn't really have center stage. No, that's the cliche of it, or that's the, the take on it that I find kind you, of interesting. You bring Metcalf, John Metcalf's name into it. I think it's interesting because I actually, I'm very clear in my mind, I feel that the dispensing of an opinion, positive or negative. So it's not negative criticism that really bothers me. It's mm. not positive criticism. Oh, it's just the fact that, that it's that my, I feel, I feel this way. I feel that the, the giving me either your love of a novel or your hatred of a novel without an examination of what the novel is, is in fact a form of autobiography, not mm. a form of fiction. Mm. It is fascinating to you that mm. something is good or bad because that is part of your process. Yeah. as a human, going through an art form. But it isn't fascinating to me unless I care about you. How does the review justify the subjective opinion? Sure. Or how does None it do. provide context? None do. The assumption these days is that if I give it a positive review or if I give it a negative review, in other words, if I am emotional towards I have done my service towards the book. So mm -hmm. a positive review is great because I love it. Well, actually, no. What do you like? Why do What's you love it? Why do you love it? What's going on here? Okay. So negative reviews are not any more or less uh, problematic to me than positive ones. Right. They're both forms of autobiography. Yeah. And I have problems with that being passed off as literary criticism. Again, I don't care about autobiography. It's a great thing. If we all know that what's going on in the pages of a review section is that somebody is going to tell me about something about themselves, Right. So I'm going there to see, I'm going there to read autobiography, and some people are absolutely charming when they talk about their inner selves. Yeah. Some people are not. But the fact is, we'll all know what's starting out. We'll all know what's going on if we start from that same page. But I actually find that, I find that weak. 
what it does is it stops us from engaging on a deeper level with works of art. Mm. Works of art have structure to them, they have diction, they have all sorts of complications that we are becoming less and less able to deal with mm. because we are more and more interested only in the emotional reaction to the thing. I brought I up, think. I brought up John Metcalf partly because he himself was influenced by Philip Larkin and uh, Kingsley Amos, who rather famously at some moment talked about not needing to engage with something. Larkin has a moment in which he said, it was a great revelation to me. I was sitting in a theater watching a play, and I realized I didn't have to watch it to the end. I could get up and go. In other words, what was important to him, his own emotional state, superseded what's going on on the stage. And the pleasure principle yeah. is what he introduces. Do I like it? Yeah. Well, actually, I don't give a fuck what Philip Martin likes. Why should I? I like his poetry, but I don't yeah. care what he cares about. My, what well, what he mean, says no. about Miles Davis takes yeah. nothing into account of what's going on to come to Miles Davis. Yeah. What he says about Charlie Parker has no understanding of what goes on to get to that. I don't like it. It sounds like noise. Well, fuck you. Don't listen to it. Why Why do I have to get involved in your personal struggle to understand something? I don't. And that was a kind of big moment for me. Yes, I can admire Philip Larkin as a poet, but no, I'm not interested in his opinions because actually they're more telling me about Philip Larkin. I think that's the, the point you're making is it's that we need greater depth. Yeah. That's, all, that's basically that's it. it. The other problem is, though, we've only got so much space. The other curlicue is that we are dealing with a medium, newspapers, magazines, that are vanishing in some ways. And so they are desperately trying to hang on to something, emotions, that they feel they can sell. Mm -hmm. If I yeah. can sell a guy who makes everybody angry, that is fantastic. The newspaper sells. If I can sell somebody who is like absolutely able to transmit his enthusiasm, that sells newspapers. That sells magazines. Let's get back to our sure. uh, our bad sure. our bad guy. Is he a bad guy? Uh, in the novel or in real in badly. Is badly a bad guy? You're talking. You're not talking about Davidoff. You're talking about badly now. Talk about badly. Okay. Um, is badly a good guy or a bad guy? That wouldn't occur to me. I'll tell you why. He is undergoing something, a process, a coming to understanding mm -hmm. that I think is admirable, regardless of where he starts and how he starts. So Just the I, fact that he starts is admirable. I think so. Yeah. Well, although, what, what is the point at which he starts? The, well, the desperate search for Avery Andrews or just this accidental contact with the inspired leading him to something deeper. because He wouldn't have gotten there if he hadn't have uh, had the motivation to... That's right. If he hadn't been obsessed with Avery yeah. Andrews, he would never have been able to make contact with the thing behind Avery Andrews. And Avery Andrews loves to wear a yellow cardigan and ox blood Oxfords. Why the hell is that? I'll tell you why. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be an answer Rene to Mag that. Oh, there is, there is, there is. It's Rene Magritte. Okay. Magritte used to dress in a suit before he painted every day, and that made me laugh. I mean, I think, what, you're dressing in like a, like a, a suit and tie and going to do painting? <laughs> going to the office. Like, hey, exactly. yeah. But I'm with Gil Davidoff on that one. A writer shouldn't be caught dead in a... <laughs> except dead. Yes, except dead, yeah. In, in a cardigan. It's funny, just yesterday I read a definition of poetry being a battlefield of competing definitions of what work is. That's a beautiful definition, by the way. So there's probably more contention around the job definition of a poet than pretty well any other kind of job that you'll find. I liked 
And when it was just kind of a throwaway line of yours, mm-hmm. when you simply said to be more expansive, it was just the use of that oh, okay. throwaway line it's the narrative for the thing. reader. Yeah. yeah, I enjoyed that. I okay. don't know why. <laughs> Maybe it reminded you of something from the 19th century. I have no idea, <laughs> but it's, 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 it's Anthony fielding sort of interjections at the beginning of the Well, you're talking about a chapter. writer that I admire a lot. Mm. Tom Jones is a great novel. Actually, Tom Jones is in some ways an essential novel for me because it's an exploration of nature and civilization. What is a good man, quote-unquote? Mm-hmm. Is it possible to define a man in that way? It's a deeply interesting philosophical book, but disguised as a ribald classic romp through a blackguard's life. Yeah. Tom Jones is not a blackguard. No, no. Byron called him such, but he's, Tom Jones is, is an innocent who comes into himself at the end. It's a great novel. Well, it's funny. You talk about a learning experience, mm. about going on a journey. That's what our, our man is doing here mm-hmm. to some extent. He then connects with his idol. Mm-hmm. In a kind of an odd way, he breaks into the house or opens the door and wants his hero to see his manuscript, his work of criticism. And then the two of them, after connecting, make their way down to a hospital, Western. Mm-hmm. No, he follows him, right? And he disappears down a rabbit hole. That rabbit hole turns out to be a big, empty room where Badley hears his parents. The effect of hearing his parents' voice was deeply disturbing, and he left the room at once. Mm-hmm. You're asking me a question, or you're just looking at me? <laughs> seeing what's going to happen. Uh, what do you want? It's interesting it a, to hear a... your parents' voice. Oh, okay. It is interesting to hear your parents' voice, but they're both dead. And also, it is a connection on some level to the source of where writing and creativity comes from, childhood. So his initial reaction to being faced with his own childhood is panic. It's Mm -hmm. a turning away. Mm -hmm. So his first exposure to what goes on in that place is, I can't take it. He he's doesn't like disturbed. to hear. He's yes. deeply disturbed by his parents' voice. Yeah. All of a sudden, That's something an interesting... from the past is like absolutely present to him, and he finds that very disturbing. He doesn't know where to put it at that point. So one so, connects disturbing with parents. Yes, but I don't think Maybe it's because not. his parents are disturbed. I think it's because hearing their voices is disturbing. Yeah. yeah. And again, it's being in the presence of something that I think every artist would say is absolutely crucial in the creative process. Your past? Formative years. Form, formation. Yeah. And of course, the, the ready symbol for that is your parents, I guess. It's kind of an odd place to encounter God is in a kind of antiseptic. My father was a doctor. So it's as simple as that. You know. Toronto Western is where he went when he came from Ottawa to um, do his internship. So I would have had uh, an exposure to it at a, at a very young age. But I think it's also life and death. I mean, isn't it? That's what a hospital is. It is, but it's it's, it's a disturbing place, it isn't is. it? It's just, yes, not, it just, is. just profound moments in our lives and death that come up there, but also just the fact that it is so inhuman as well. Mm-hmm. Speaking of then connections, when he meets his hero, he feels, felt, excitement, wonder, fear, confusion, guilt, deference, arrogance, and disbelief. And each emotion must have imposed its own fleeting expression on his face. That's interesting. (laughs) All of that. Mm. Because 
there's all of this stuff wrapped up in who you idolize. It's all of your expectations. It's all mm -hmm. of your sense of accomplishment of having come to this place, your wonder of having met that person, the history of your history with them. I mean, there's a lot going on yeah. in this encounter with someone that he has created inside of himself and now has seen externally. But it's so, a stranger, and yet it's so not a stranger. Exactly. Uh, playing on the externalizing, right, which is what art is. It's bringing that stuff out. Mm. So that moment is an encounter between his version of Avery Andrews and Avery Andrews. Everything from confusion yeah. to, uh, you know, pride that he's gotten there, all of those things are like part of this thing. Yeah. Not that it's ever happened to me in real life. I have only met one of my idols. His name is Harry Matthews, and he contributed to, to that book. I felt more numb, like, wow, this person exists when I first met Harry Matthews. I met one of my heroes. I met. It's always a bad thing. It is and it isn't. I met J.M. Kutsia and spent mm -hmm. a little nice bit guy. of time with him. But my reaction was, was just maybe not quite as expansive as this, but. It's putting a, that's putting a lot of names to things yeah. that are indefinable in yeah. this moment. Yeah. But it's certainly a complicated moment. I'm, I'm a book collector and he's, he was signing my books for me. I knew that he wasn't my friend, mm -hmm. and why am I getting him to sign all these books? Is this some kind of weird attempt, you know, to show that I'm connected to him when really I'm not connected to him? Mm -hmm. So it was quite a, a existential. I think you capture just the fact that it is a very complicated moment. It is complicated. You use the word corrosive. The bitterness in Andrew's voice was so corrosive. Mm -hmm. And that's because... You mean, why did I use that word? No, why is it corrosive for for Badley? Well, read the sentence. The bitterness in Andrew's voice was so corrosive, Badley accepted his own insignificance <coughs> mm -hmm. as if it were an obvious fact. Mm -hmm. Interesting sentence. Don't know what Andre Alexis was thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, in fact, you get you go on to say... I don't even know. I can't even interpret my own word. That's what Avery Andrews says. Avery Andrews says, and I think that's perhaps a comment on the reviewer. If, if the author doesn't even know what they're doing, then how can a reviewer know what they're doing? Is Avery Andrews right there? I, I don't know. I have my suspicions about him. Mm. He kills Margaret Lawrence. And so part yeah. of him must have been on the outside and thought about what fiction in his case, meant. I mean, he didn't want to be a poet, which is the amusing part. He wanted to be a fiction writer. Mm -hmm. Part of him must have been outside and understood the mechanisms of admiration, for one thing, but also the mechanisms of the art form. So his pretense that he doesn't understand anything about it, not sure. But his corro the corrosion of his judgment is obviously because, in fact, uh, Alexander Badley admires him so much that to have him counter his uh, idolatry and whatnot yeah, yeah. with something so unexpected blows his idolatry all, all out of the water. I mean, right. corrosive literally in that it's, um, it simply takes away something that had been part of badly for a long time. Right. Uh, uh, Avery Andrews is not to be trusted. Well, he's, he says he doesn't know what's going on, but he does know where it comes from, and yes. it comes from God. Yes. And that takes us on our trip down to the hospital. Yeah. Where... We do actually encounter God, some character that's got a white beard and he's lying in, in a bed. And then, of course, there's this fear of madness. Of course, think of 
Mozart, I mean, and also Metastopheles and Faust, and in this whole process of selling your soul or seeking inspiration, or well, it's, it's the nature of division. If it becomes too, too real, too seductive, mm-hmm. then it takes you away from the real. Right. The, the, the mad is losing contact with the day to day. Day to day is 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 something that you seek to leave, but it's something that you need a hand on yeah. in order to live. And so there is a constant fear that you will lose track of the world. At least on in Avery Angel's case, there's there's that fear. It becomes a fear for Alexander Badley too. But on the other hand, later on he talks about walking through Toronto and being in love with Toronto. He talks about after these sessions in his mind, walking through the city is like being waking up with someone that you love, that you can see them for the first time, that you can feel this intimacy with it. So the the vision thing also affords him uh, a more intimate look at the real, too. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange mechanism of alienation and refinding. You know? Yeah, the world could not be as he was now experiencing it and still be the world had he lost his mind or some drug mysteriously administered had taken from him. But then you compare it to mindlessness. So again, you're talking about the actual experience of being inspired. Yes, definitely. Yes. You know, everybody's had it who has written at all, and you will have had it as well, where you go to a place and you're engaged in a project and all of a sudden what you swear is two minutes is in fact three hours. You have been sitting down, mm-hmm. you have done this thing, and time has passed in a way that is incalculable. That's part of it. You simply you simply lose it. You go to this place. Yeah. Where's that place? Is that place dangerous? Is it not dangerous? Avery fears it or respects it. I, I suppose in the end, Alexander Badley comes uniquely to fear it which is why he can no longer go to it. He said here, at this point, it was a revelation to him that he was capable. That's right. Obscene. Yeah. Yes. In, in, in essence, he's, he's always seeing the outside. He's always seeing the spore of that animal or the, the traces of that animal's passage, you know, that he sees poetry, which, in essence, when he participates in the kind of inspiration, he explicitly says, or it's explicitly says, that he would have chosen different words out of that moment. Mm-hmm. So... The words that come out of that thing in that moment are almost a betrayal of that moment, right? This moment where he's with Avery Andrews and experiencing the creation of a poem by Avery Andrews and feeling those words to be a betrayal of the moment of inspiration. Because what? At some point they're... They're second best. They are what you can take away from that place. They're not necessarily what you want to take away from that place, Mm -hmm. which is the whole thing about writing poetry instead of writing prose. This is what you can take away. It isn't necessarily what you want to take away. You don't have, at least as far as I understand it, in my experience of it, you don't have the right to take what you want. You can take what you can. And you have to learn to do that and and, and love that, which Avery Andrews does for years. She says it's like being eaten alive by the sacred. Uh, yeah, because you you don't have any control over what comes. Well, and control. Control is a tr- tricky word. Nabokov said, poof, of course I have control. What, am I crazy in that moment? Yeah, actually, kind of, you are. <laughs> mm. you know? And to prove it, you went on for 30 fucking years of your life writing about the same thing, 
young girl, man, young girl, man, all the different ways and permutations of that. Were you actually aware that you were doing that, or did you have to do that? I think if you look at everything from Lolita on, you're seeing gradually the obsessions and the necessary visions becoming the only thing that he can get to. Mm -hmm. He's not in control. He certainly would have done something else when it came to look at the Harlequins. It's interesting. I think that if you, you go through Nabokov's life, as an artist, you have proof that there is a, a an obsessive quality to what he does. He wants to be in control. He doesn't really have control. None of us do. We're not gods. We're not, but we're touched by God, and I suppose... In quotation marks. Once you get the inspiration... It's not that that's the final word either. Just It's just something that can be polished. Yes. Yes. That's absolutely. In the poem that he first hears Avery Andrews write in that moment of inspiration is in fact different from the poem that is published in the book by Avery Andrews that's reviewed by Ismail Anderson. Yeah, who's a real person. There you go. <laughs> a real person. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of, that kind of jumped off the page because I, I mean, I, I communicate with him. Sure. I just want to read a little quote from William Hazlitt. A writer I know. Like his contemporaries, Hazlitt begins with the presumption that poetry is no ordinary gift, no merely elegant form of dealing with the everyday. Citing Bacon as his authority, he sees poetry as having something of the divine in it, something which renders it unique instead of ancillary to rhetoric or philosophy or theology. It is, he says, strictly the language of the imagination, and the imagination is that faculty which represents objects not as they are in themselves, but as they are molded by other thoughts and feelings into an infinite variety of shapes and combinations of power. This language is not the less true to nature because it is false in point of fact, but so much the more true and natural if it conveys the impression which the object under the influence of passion makes on the mind. Is that what you're getting at? Yep, perfect definition and one I know. I'm a Hazlitt reader, so okay. imagination for me is, if we're possessed of anything sacred or godlike, it's that. So we go from the godlike to the world of all of these people who are seeking godlike inspiration, the real world of those people. Yeah. Abu Allah, servants of God. A. Abu Allah, servant of God. A. That's where it comes from. It comes from two things. The title comes from that, and it also comes from um, Antonin Artaud. In Antonin Artaud's life, he, of course, went crazy, so you know, that would explain the craziness of the quote-unquote God. But there's a situation in which uh, Jacques Prevel, who was a young poet, visited him at the Insane Asylum and uh, took notes on their visits, wrote down some of his extemporaneous poetry sayings. sayings. The, the situation in which Jacques Prevel, a young would-be poet and lover of poetry, takes notes from a man whose mind is uh, not attached to the world with any particular strength, Anthony Artaud, struck me as really intriguing. And so yeah. that image was kind of at the start of the, of the story. So A mm. is not André Lectis, it's Antonin Artaud and Abu Allah, which is a servant of Allah, which is what artists are. But then we get into the world of literary Toronto. Yeah. And that's not quite so heavenly. No. Our man doesn't 
doesn't like that too much. He wanted it before. He wanted it. Almost everyone at the reception that he was at turned away and, what, they weren't terribly friendly except for one person by the name of Andre Alexis. Mm -hmm. Or one of my girlfriends is Andre Alexis. It's more like Catherine Bush's Andre Alexis because I need to watch. A writer whose work badly despised. Yeah. Clearly, Badley's not a very good critic. (laughs) At that point, he actually is a good critic. So, (laughs) he's already got his critical acumen by that point. Well, we all have trouble with our makers, don't we? So, you you drop a a few little crumbs here. Um, So, he's he's at a sort of a reception, I guess. And it's about his None of those people are real. No, but you can't help but wonder. You want to, but it's not. There was the aging son of a late, great Canadian writer. Nobody. Not Barry Callahan. No, nobody. I would have named them. And also, this is really important. There is a huge difference between fiction and nonfiction. This is a difference that David Gilmore denies. There is a huge difference between the two. And one of the ways in which it's different is that if I'm writing nonfiction, I don't have to like a character. I'm simply noting what has happened in the world. My liking, admiration, or anything for that character is secondary to the recreation of historical or factual circumstances around that person. When I'm writing a novel, when I'm writing a short story, I have to like that person because I have to know what that person is as a free atom. I have to know what it's likely to do, feel, want. It isn't something that I can stand beside and watch it in movements. Mm-hmm. I have to understand its movements because on some level, even if that free atom isn't speaking or entering into it in a direct way as some of, some of the others are, mm-hmm. it is part of that environment. It is part of that place. So for me, there's not a possibility. It's what makes fiction so difficult. There's not a possibility of not identifying. And on some level, if the word isn't love, It's certainly not hate, but it's something deep. Mm. It's part of me, or not really part of me, part of the world that is being um, drawn. There's a distinction. The world that is being drawn and depicted is in some ways not you. The the parameters that you have provided are not really you. you That's where the the border of um, form and content kind of exists. I can actually create a formal space that somewhat belongs to me and somewhat doesn't. It comes from elsewhere, it comes from other people, it comes from the literary form, it comes from what I need in order to say what I need to say, but it doesn't feel me, it's formal, doesn't feel me in the same way that its characters or the atoms within that formal space do at times feel like me. So, I don't name people unless I have to, like Andache or Atwood or Graham Gibson, and I have to name them because talking about Toronto at such and such a time without mm. mentioning them means you're not talking about Toronto. Alice Monroe exists. Margaret Atwood exists. And they are actually uh, 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 utterly important and uncircumscribable aspect of what Toronto literary life means. So what would it mean to invent um, a doyen of Canadian fiction or to invent a, a Sri Lankan guy who's written a couple of novels. No, actually it's this specific place that I'm referring to. Because you want to 
you want the reader to be there. To yes. As soon as I say Margaret Atwood, you're yeah. in Toronto. I, I find them unavoidable in that sense. They're as real as the city is for Alexander Bradley. They're as real for me as the city becomes for Alexander Bradley. So if I had wanted to, to say specific writer X or specific writer, I would have named them. Right. Although, again, I mean, you're playing with the reader a little bit. The other character you you uh, describe as like a Raggedy Ann doll who wore her hair severely pulled back. Her lipstick was of such a bright red and her face so heavily made up that she looked like a Raggedy Ann doll. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Why did you go to that extent of describing this person? You know, you could have asked me that question about why I describe High Park as well. Mm-hmm. or why I go into such detail about um, objects. Sometimes mm-hmm. the mind is drawn to these things because they're vivid, mm-hmm. and they anchor the story down. Detail. With those things, yeah. Not detail for you, although it may end up being significant detail for you, but detail for me. It's an anchor in my mind as to the environment that I am inhabiting. Yeah. And that was just a very, very close one. Is it based on somebody real? Maybe I've seen it. Sure. Yeah. Okay. But if it was real, I would have named it because it was important to name it. This is part of, you know, the, the masks that come out of literary Toronto. Yeah. You just see them and then they go. It really is cloud cuckoo land in some ways. You know? But then I think all literary worlds are like that, and that's why they're kind of in opposition to the godly. The godly, the yes. The inspired. Yes. Because they are so earthbound. They are so... Petty. Flesh and petty and mean. Yeah, which is why David Gilmore, who I think is petty and mean and whatever, was a perfect example for me of the opposite of the godly. So actually, him giving that interview with Mark Medley was great for me because it immediately provided me with a counterweight to the inspiration. The real David Gilmore, I don't know. I don't know. I've never met him. You've met him, so you'd know more about him than me. Maybe he's a great guy. I think you'd like him. I probably would like him. We like the same work. As a matter of fact, I would probably like him a great deal. I think so. But circumstances haven't conspired to make us not like each other. We don't like each other. Yeah. I could have said the same thing about Dion Brand. Dion Brand and I were born within four years of each other in Trinidad. We have the same initial voices in our heads. We have the same kind of feel, I think, for language. And I'm, when I hear her read her work, I am immediately in the presence with some, of something that is vital to me. But I don't like Dion Brand. I mean, okay, I wrote a bad review of Bread Not Stone, Bread Out of Stone, or whatever it was. And You've got to be honest, though, haven't you? Well, that's the point, isn't it? But, on the other hand, people have been honest with me as well. You know, and have I reacted? Sure, I've reacted. But I don't hold it. I can't. Try not to. You can't. You have to do the thing that I do, which is... Well, at least I have to do the thing that I do. Is like, there are 7 billion, 100 million people on the face of Earth right now. That's one opinion. Really? One seven billion? You're going to, like, go crazy over that? Yeah, there's a lot of fish in the sea. Lots. Yeah. Lots. Yeah. It's like everybody getting upset about Noel Gallagher talking about... Reading fiction being a waste of fucking time. What do you yeah. care? Yes. <laughs> really? Okay, so in, in, in real terms, the first thing I think is you'll never be able to love Animal Farm. <laughs> Too bad. Right. I mean, who gives a fuck? You know? yeah. But we make, um, we make these exemplary people into such big things. It's like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Final question. Are you getting to T.S. Eliot's point about a good critic can't be a critic unless they're a poet. No, no. I'm getting to Goethe's point, 
which is, um, I think, deeper, which is that there are fewer good critics in any generation than there are good poets or good writers. Criticism is Abu Allah. It is placing yourself as the yeah. servant of something, not the fawning admirer of, not the standing above it, critic thereof with your superiority, but a servant of this art form. And that involves a depth of uh, sacrifice and prayer that is as deep as the sacrifice and prayer given to literature, poetry, film, painting, whatever. We don't appreciate it because in our time we have conflated personal reaction for real care, criticism. We, I mean, you know, we call reviewers critics. They're not. I do it too. I do it as well. I mean, we, we've lost that distinction and I'm part of what has lost the distinction. But I think that um, a great critic, a truly great critic, a Northrop Fry, or um, name, name, name your great critic, is a rarity. I mean, I can name more great poets than I can great critics. Um, service to the art is as valuable as service to the inspiration um, that provides material for that art form. It's, um, it's a form of service. It really is about um, who serves what and how. You know, it's not about you, it's about the thing. And that's the distinction that we're trying to make at the start of this discussion. We're talking about like what criticism is, mm-hmm. service to the art. In our generation, maybe who's doing that? Mm-hmm. I would love it for somebody to point me in the direction of someone who is actually at the service of the art form, as opposed to promoting their own view of what the art form mm-hmm. should be, what the art form should be like in an ideal situation, and so on and so forth. And one of the approaches that I do like although I guess it's not traditional, is Stephen Greenblatt's mm. when he's looking at Shakespeare uh, and like, talking about, like, you know... It's his, pure conjecture. It is. But on the outsides of it, there is, well, actually, inadvertently, one is a reflector of the time and place and the socio-historical significance yeah. of things and, and point us back towards that. Well, In doing the, so, they point us back towards a time that's interesting, but they yeah. point us back to a, a, a way of creation. So it illuminates the way... Um, the assumptions behind an art form are at the time that the art form is created. Well, just the fact that you know, if you were Catholic, you got your head cut off and stuck on a pole mm-hmm. on a bridge going into London. I mean, that's just knowing that. That's pretty vivid. That's <laughs> that's pretty vivid. We're talking about heavenly place and giving yourself up in service to whatever art form it might be. But you're you're also engaging at a very personal level in a kind of a cat fight. I think and I wonder why you're... Uh, are you referring doing? specifically to um, using Gil Daffodil? It stirs up conversation. That wouldn't be my first reason that I would Or, or it, you're no. just, you're not wanting to, you don't like being attacked, so you're just attacking back. That would be, that would be closer to the truth, but actually deeper than that is that it was convenient at that point. Very convenient. It for just the story. worked for you. It worked great. Because I un- also was able to understand the poles apart from this moment of disappearing in time and creating to this moment of hanging out with a bunch of people that are just interested in their reputations. Yeah. It provides a perfect whole polarization of what Alexander Badley has to go through. If you, if you take him as being the soul in search of something, you see these two opposite things as yeah. being where he has to work and yeah. find a place to live within those two things. So it was perfect for me, you know. But, but you also, know, the, it's like, the, I'm petty, I'm petty, sure. I mean, I belong to the world. It's why I try not to hang out with literary 
I try not to go to a lot of literary things. You know, it's like it just reminds me of how petty I am too. You gotta be honest. Yeah, no, I was gonna say Gilmore hates hanging out in those same crowds. I mean, you you know, no, no, it's a very sure, similar. I, it's know, a very I'm similar. Sure if I'd never reviewed his book, and we had met, and neither of us knew that we were writers. We could be friendly, yeah. maybe. Maybe I don't know. Some of the attitudes I think uh, I, I find of his are uh, really, really difficult to deal with. On the other hand, he talks about them, which I admire. Well, the conversation continues. Absolutely. Thank you for um, no, conversing. <clears throat> if nothing else, we'll we'll get a few people thinking a bit more about oh, God, reviewing no. and maybe not. No, maybe no, not. God, no. That's not no. what you want. 